1: Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we open God's Word. So, Father, as we continue to grow and and serve, and not just grow in numbers, but grow in our spiritual lives, we ask, Lord, that You would continually remind us that Your Word is central to everything that we do, that we are committed to Your Word and the power of it to change our lives. We're grateful for the opportunity to study it every week, not only on Sunday mornings, but in grace groups and in Bible studies, the children studying your word, the young people studying, just all of these ways that we come to your word knowing that it is a foundation for us as we're trying to live life and understand more about who you are and who we are and what your plan is for us. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of opening up your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. The first thing I'd like to do today is we look at this passage, is I'd like to talk to you about the Footnote in your Bible. I hope you have a footnote. Look at it. Do you see the footnote in this passage that we're looking at today? The footnote says this. It says, these verses, which is uh, John chapter 753 to 811, are not found in the earliest manuscripts. Now I want to explain to you what that's all about and why we have that written there, because um, it's very important to us who are Bible-believing Christians. We want to know when there are some challenges. Let me explain to you what's going on here. There are over 25,000 manuscripts uh, of the Bible, some in parts, some in larger parts, but when you put them one over the top of another, they are the same, which is fascinating, except there are a few little variants here and there. We wanna know what those variants are, and we wanna know that because we understand that the scripture is inspired. In fact, I'm gonna show you the theological terminology that we use to describe what we mean by understanding that the Bible is inspired. We believe it's inspired, which means that the Holy Spirit inspired the writers as they were writing them, but not just the thoughts and ideas, and they wrote them down. We believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of God's Word. Plenary means fullness. That means equally full inspiration of Old Testament, New Testament, different kinds of, of... We have poetry. We have... Um, historical nerves. We have prophecy. All of that is fully inspired by God, but we also believe that it's verbally inspired. Verbally means we believe that the very words that were chosen by John and Paul and Peter and others to write down, the very words themselves are inspired by God. The very letters that are in the text are inspired by God. The tenses of those verbs are inspired by God. That's a pretty significant statement. I want to make sure you understand that's what we're talking about. So it's very important for us to know what, what, if there's a variant somewhere. When you start studying this idea of, of the um, integrity of God's Word, and you're impressed with the amazing sameness that exists among all of these um, documents, considering they didn't have photocopiers in those times. They took great care, the scribes took great care in meticulously copying the Scriptures, knowing that this is a holy book. So they we're very careful about their, their writings. So when it says that a story like the one we're going to read today is not found in the earlier manuscripts, what that means is we have these manuscripts from all over. We collect them all and put them all together. Some were very early, some were later, and it appears that maybe in this case, this story wasn't actually written by John. Maybe it was written by a scribe who thought, hey, this is a good story to remember. Maybe it was put in the side And then later when another scribe came along, put it into the actual text. We don't know for sure. Maybe it was there in the original. We're not sure. One of the things that impresses us about this study of of the text itself is that there are no variants that have anything to do with any beliefs or theological doctrine or significant um, truths about God's Word. And whenever we see some kind of a variant like this one we're going to look at today, did this happen? No doubt it happened in Jesus' life, and it illustrates some other things we find in God's Word. So we're excited to see this story. We're excited to learn about it and read about it today. I want to take you into it so that you can understand it and see what it looks like. I don't think I'm totally dead here, which means we go to plan B. Give me just a second. Okay, maybe I'm back, which means we come to reading the Scriptures together. Would you please stand with me as we read this whole story together? Starting in verse 53 of John chapter 7, it says this, They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground, There are two meetings here we want to talk about, and thus I think we come back to two applications for our lives today. Meeting number one is is Jesus' meeting with the scribes and the Pharisees. The second meeting is with with the woman alone. And as we go to this meeting with the scribes and the Pharisees, we're going to see this confrontation that takes place. Now, they're coming, as it says in the text, that they're coming to test him or to trap him. Let me explain the trap so you understand what they're trying to do. If uh, Jesus were to say, yes stone this woman because she has sinned and violated the law, then he would uh, alienate many of those followers who knew that Jesus was a friend of sinners. He would also be in violation of the Roman government because uh, the Jewish community was under Roman law that didn't allow the Jews to enact the the, uh, capital punishment, even if their law uh, prescribed that. And so, they would have a way to condemn him or get him in trouble if he were to answer, yes, stone her. On the other hand, if he were to say, no, let her go, there were some of his followers who would say, oh, he's soft on sin, he's just letting her go. And he would be then alienating many of the people who were Jewish people who held the law so carefully. So he was in a trap. If he says yes, he's going to be in trouble. If he says no, he's in trouble, and they ask him a yes or no question. And it's interesting that Jesus doesn't answer the question, does he? You see what he does? I mean, he's brilliant what he does, because what he's going to do is he's going to remove all of the accusers, so now we don't have anything we can take this woman to account. If all the accusers are gone, then she's not really uh, in a place where we can judge her or or actively um, execute her, because all the accusers are gone. But he's also going to turn this back around on them and challenge them in their self-righteousness. And that's where I, I spent some time in my own life this week, you know, self-righteous. I want to be careful not to be self-righteous. Well, Let's look and see what Jesus does because he bends down to the ground twice. This is what it says. He says, instead of answering their question, he says, it says Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask Him, He stood up and He said these words, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once again, He bent down and wrote on the ground. So, He does these two writings on the ground, and He makes these words. And what happens is then, as you can read in the text, that these people are pricked in their conscience. They're, they're, uh, they realize that they're in trouble or they're going to be shamed themselves publicly somehow if they don't back off. And so, they walk away and they leave the situation. It's I wonder what he wrote on the ground. I mean, we all got to wonder that, right? We do not know what he wrote on the ground, but uh, there's some ideas. I, I think it had something to do with uh, the conscience and prompting them to turn around and go away. One suggestion is that he wrote the law, you know, different parts of the law. Don't steal. Don't lie. Um, and he wrote these down on one side. Then he stood up and he says, anybody who's without sin, they can cast the first down. Then he writes down, sits down. Maybe the second time when he bends down, he writes the person's name next to each one. And when he writes those names down, the guys are going, whoa, he knows that? Whoa. And they don't want to get shamed, so they're quick to uh, move out of the way. Another idea, and this is all conjecture, but I thought it was interesting. Maybe he wrote down on the left, he wrote names of women. He just wrote down a bunch of names of women, and on the right-hand side, when he bent down again, he wrote their names next to these women. Maybe they didn't commit adultery, but maybe they were looking at that woman, or maybe they had a conversation with that woman that was private that nobody knew about, and they're going, oh, oh, I think I'm going to step back from this now. Jesus is challenging their self-righteousness. What is self-righteous, self-righteousness anyway? I think the first part of self-righteousness is being right. And I'm thinking, uh-oh, that's me. Yeah, I'm right. Most of the time I'm right. <laughs> I'm certainly right when it comes to knowing that Jesus Christ is the only way that we can experience salvation. So sometimes people who are not believers say, you are so self-righteous. You're so intolerant of other people and their beliefs. You are just being self-righteous. I don't think that's what self-righteousness is, but it is true that when we're right or we believe we're right, we are very close to being self-righteous, which means that all of us as Christians need to be very careful about this self-righteousness. It's not just theological issues, okay, but it has to do in a family. Did you know there's a right way to put that toilet paper roll on the toilet paper roller? Or do you know there's a right way to handle our finances here in our family? There are a lot of spouses who get angry with each other and they're self-righteous because they know the right way to manage finances. They know the right way how to park the car, or the right way of when to get gas in your car, or whatever it is, okay? So there's a lot of um, times that we believe that we're right. I believe I'm right most of the time, which means that I am in danger of self-righteous attitude but self-righteousness isn't just being right or believing you're right it also has this idea that i believe i'm better than you because i'm right and we have this attitude that says i'm better than you because i'm right that's when uh self-righteousness takes effect in our lives and there are times when that happens in a family oh, i can't believe you're doing it. it's just kind of treating someone with disgust so if you would just do it this way and so we're kind of looking down on someone else in a marriage relationship, because we're right. Ooh, we got to be careful with this, I think, especially those of us who think we're right most of the time. I think that, what was that now? Come on. Were you saying that about your, your husband there? Okay. Anyway, what we need here is we've got to have an attitude. See, I do think we can speak boldly about our salvation experience and so we can tell people there's only one way to get to heaven. But we have to be careful about looking at someone else and say, I'm better than you because I know how to get to heaven. That's a whole different response. Do you know why these guys left? These guys left the situation? They left because they came in contact with their own sin. That's why they left. See, I think it's very important for us as Christians to come in contact with our own sin nature. In fact, I think studying the sin nature is really helpful for us because it's the practical application of studying the sin nature is humility in our lives. I'm not as great as I think I am. And whenever there are differences, whether there are differences in the church or differences in the family or differences even politically, sometimes we can look at others and say, "Ah, those people are so… and we fill in the blank because we think we're better than they are somehow. We have to be so careful about thinking we are better than other people in this whole self-righteous attitude. This is not a, a story alone in the Bible. Jesus was trying to teach this regularly to the Pharisees and describe this to them. He says in Matthew 7, 3 and 4, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is, a, uh, there is the log in your own eye? But see, we don't see the log in our own eye. My wife regularly says, hey, can I clean your glasses for you? It's bothering me. (laughs) I don't see my glasses are dirty, but it's bothering her that my glasses are dirty, so she's very gracious and cleans them for me. I think sometimes the things are so close to our own eyes, we don't even see them. We have to be very careful, I think, in this whole attitude that we are better. We are not better than someone, and it has to do with knowledge that we think we have a knowledge issue, or sometimes it's our lifestyle. You know, there's things that I don't do, which make me so much better than those people who do them. Or some things that I do in my life that other people don't do, which makes me better than... When I do that, that's self-righteousness. And so I look at these guys, these Pharisees, and I say, I'd never want to become a Pharisee. And I think, whoa, whoa, maybe I'm enacting a little bit of self-righteousness in my own heart. I just think this is a really tricky area in our lives. I think we're closer to self-righteousness than we imagine much of the time. I think one of the key passages that helps us understand more about what I'm saying here about self-righteousness is this passage in Luke where Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, that's the first thing, and that they had the right, you know, I got the right a lot of times, I'm in the right, and treated others with contempt. That's the two things that make self-righteousness. Not only do I think I'm right, but I judge those people in my heart, I look down on those people, and I, I think, I treat them with contempt because I'm better than them, is the idea. Mm, Man, I need to be careful. Here's the story. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this way, God, I thank you that I am not like other men who are extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over there. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This has got to be the key here. Lord, I am a sinner, and let me never lose touch with the fact that I am a sinner, and your mercy has allowed me to get where I am today, to have a lifestyle. That is right or to to understand you with rightness or to be right in something. It's only by your mercy. I am a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, he says, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Humility is one of those qualities that we must have along with the truth. We must have the two things together. We hold the truth, don't we? I mean, I I believe a lot of things in the Bible are true. I know they're true, but the way I handle that with people is very important. Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 8, he opens up the idea and he says, all right, guys, let's talk about food offered to idols. He says, every one of you has knowledge, and knowledge puffs up. Well, sometimes we think we know something. And that something that we know can cause us to become arrogant in our lives. When it comes to food offered to idols, what they would say is, look, I don't have any problem eating the food offered to idols. It's sold at a discount in the marketplace because it's already been sold to idols. But idols are nothing. I don't have any problem eating that food. That's fine. If I, and those other people that won't eat the food, you know, eh, forget them. I'm just going to go ahead and eat the food. And so there was this, this attitude about knowledge. I have more knowledge than they do. Therefore, I'm right, they're wrong, and there's this attitude of contempt. Or it was the other people say, oh, I would never, I would never eat food that was offered to idols because it's contaminated, not physically, but it's associated with idolatry. I would never, look at those people eating that food offered to idols. And do you see the attitude that comes with whatever we believe is true. Mm, you know, I need to be careful. This is a sermon for me. You know, here's when you know you're being self-righteous, is when you want to call somebody a name. If you you ever call somebody a name, then you know self-righteousness is right there. That's what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Let me read it to you. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And I know that, okay? We all know we don't murder. We know that's wrong. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother, uh-oh, getting a little close here, will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, calls him a name, will be liable to the hell of fire. And I go, wow, self-righteousness is closer than I imagine. And so we look at these passages about the Pharisees, and we say to ourselves, boy, they sure are bad guys. No wonder Jesus is attacking them maybe we need to be the person in the story recognizing that Jesus is confronting us with our own self-righteous attitude sometimes. We need to be careful. We can speak strongly and boldly, but we must do it with an attitude of humility, and that's where the rub comes. It's hard to speak boldly without becoming arrogant in our lives. A fascinating study of Jesus and, and these guys that go away now because they, they come in touch with their own sin. They, they come in touch with their own shame and so they walk away. And I think we all need to be in touch with our sinful nature and recognize that that sinful nature has the potential to lead us into a path that would be just as degrading as those people that we're judging. Mm, We've got to be careful. So they're all gone now. The meeting is adjourned. There's no second You know, in, in Robert's Rules of Orders. Can I have a What do you call that? Can I have a a motion? That's right. And then can I have a? There's no second, so we can't. We have to table it all. All right. So now Jesus is in the private meeting now, one on one with this woman. So we're going to switch applications now. We're going to switch applications from the self-righteous attitude that I need to be careful of. Now there's this other attitude I can have that shame in my life. And some people are just so burdened with their shame of their sin that they're overly in touch with their sinful nature, and they need to be in touch with the mercy of God. And that's what we're going to see take place here. On the one hand, we have self-righteousness. On the other hand, we have unrighteousness. And watch how Jesus interacts with this poor lady. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Now, the word woman there, I mean, for us, that just that doesn't mean a lot. But this is an endearing term. It's the same name that Jesus calls his mom in uh, John chapter 2 at the, the feast. When there was no wine left, she comes to him and says, uh, listen to him. Um, he'll, he'll help you with this, to Jesus. And Jesus says to a woman, what do I have to do with this, he says. When Jesus is on the cross, hanging on the cross, he looks down and sees his mom, and he sees this writer, John, and he says, woman, see your son. John, see your mother. It's an enduring term that he's using, this idea of woman. And, and just reminds me that when we have that one-on-one meeting with the Lord, which is what we need to have on a regular basis, that one-on-one meeting where we come to the Lord and we say, wow, Lord, I just want to spend that time with you. He wants to meet with you personally in your life. You know, sometimes it's like this. You're, you're in the classroom. Imagine this. You're in the classroom, and Jesus comes to the door and says, hey, I'd like to meet with you. Come on out here. So everybody kind of goes out of the classroom, and you're still in the classroom. And Jesus is saying, standing there, and he's saying, you, I want to, and you go, me? Yeah, you, I want to meet with you. It's this very personal, intimate meeting that Jesus is having this with this woman that each one of us needs to have with Jesus in our lives. Notice that he calls her woman, a very endearing term. Notice what she calls him. Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord? Lord? Now, notice, we're up on the Temple Mount here, okay? The the guys who came earlier, the scribes and the Pharisees, they call him teacher. Typically, in the Temple Mount, you would call a person like this a rabbi. She doesn't do that. She calls him Lord. Something has taken place in their relationship together where she comes to this, this realization that he is not just a good teacher. He's not just a rabbi, but he is Lord, See, I think if she would have had a pompous attitude about her sin, then she would easily be confronted by Jesus about her sin. But Jesus sees what's going on in her heart as opposed to the self-righteous Pharisees. One of the signs of self-righteousness is you take one idea and you run with your one idea considering there are no other ideas in the picture. That's one of the things we have a hard time with politicians. I don't care what which side of the aisle you're on, but we, we all get frustrated with politicians because they, they take one side and they have, are kind of self-righteous about the others. Well, in our story of these guys, you, you have to realize that this woman was caught in the very act of adultery, which means there must have been a guy there, why do they just bring in the woman? They're just taking one piece of the whole situation. We must be humble in our approach to this as Jesus is talking to the woman, she calls him Lord. A very important first step. And I think this is what what, uh, really helps Jesus to know exactly how to minister to her heart. And so he's merciful and he's compassionate and he's gracious to her. And he says, are no accusers? Okay, he says, go. But he's not soft on sin. He says, stop sinning. Don't live a lifestyle of sin. He's strong with her because that's what happens. When you know Jesus as Lord, That's where it starts. And then Jesus says, okay, go out and sin no more. Go out and be a person that's living a lifestyle that's different, and that's what we do in our lives. Now, I think we have a a theological problem here as we come to this story because is Jesus soft on sin? In fact, how can we put these two ideas together that God hates sin, he's righteous? What do we do with the wrath and the justice and the holiness of God? I work with parents, and sometimes parents want to help their children understand the wrath and the justice and the holiness of God when they correct them. What you're doing, God is not happy with what you're doing, and the Bible says it right here. And so sometimes parents will use God and His Word to correct children. And and although the Bible is valuable for correction, I would suggest that we want to be careful that we're also emphasizing the the uh, fatherhood of God for these children. Otherwise, children. They recognize the wrath and the justice and the holiness of God. But Jesus Christ died on the cross to satisfy the wrath and the justice and holiness of God so that we could know Him as Father. We could experience the mercy and compassion and grace that God wants us to experience in our relationship to our own selves. See, I think we have to, be, we have to come in contact with the theological idea of the sin nature in order to experience humility in every one of our lives. And then we must come in contact with a theology of salvation and redemption and atonement and what that is, so that we can be freed from our shame. So the separation between the wrath and the justice and the holiness of God, and the mercy and compassion of grace of God can only take place when we look at the cross. It's the cross that bridges that. That we have the the uh, the satisfaction of our sin is is taken away because of the righteousness of God so that God can then have this mercy and compassion and grace for us. It's the cross that we're so grateful for, and we become in touch with our, our, our salvation. We are so grateful. We're freed up. We walk away from this intimate meeting with God, not with shame. We walk away with this freedom to go forward and live a new life, and we are so grateful for that. The verse I love is this one in Romans 8.1. You know it. It's, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You know what in Christ means? Those who call Him Lord. Those who come to that place in their lives where they say, I'm going to trust Jesus Christ. I'm going to commit myself to Him. I'm going to dedicate myself to Him. And when you do, you call Him Lord. He's the boss. He's the master. And then He guides our lives and moves us forward. That's the power of Lordship. And then we go out with this freedom, no condemnation, that we can enjoy our relationship with uh, Jesus Christ certainly, but then we can enjoy relationships with other people. We don't have to be burdened with shame. So if today you're struggling with this idea, I'm just such a bad person, I don't know if I can come to God, I can come to church, I gotta get my act together first, you just gotta understand. It starts with understanding that Jesus Christ is Lord. When you get that down, then the rest flows, and then we can live the life of freedom that God wants us to enjoy.
0: Thank you for sharing in this message. We pray it will make a difference in your life. Please consider joining us for our Sunday morning and evening worship services. For location and more information, visit our website, www.gracewaybc.org, and listen next time to learn more. May the God of peace richly bless you through his Son, Jesus Christ.